This is an ABC podcast. On the ABC Listen app, your smart speaker, and on AM radio. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. A little over a year ago, federal government halved the number of subsidised visits you can make to a mental health service. They dropped it from 20 back to 10. Now, if you combine that with the long wait times to see a mental health professional and the difficulty of even finding those services in some regional areas, it very quickly paints a rather dire picture. My name's Nick Healy. I'm filling in for Rochelle this week. Today, we're talking about mental health, how we make it accessible and affordable as well. That's a really important time to be talking about this, the cost of living crisis. In addition to every other pressure it's put on households, it's forced many Aussies to make some pretty tough decisions when it comes to critical mental health care. They're pushing back appointments or cancelling appointments altogether. Even people putting their own mental health care to the side to focus those resources they do have on children or other family members. And of course, those pressures themselves are making access to mental health support even more important. Is it something that's happened to you? Have you had to cancel a psychologist appointment as the day-to-day costs of living bite? Or have you struggled to be able to get appointments and support in your area, found it out of reach when you did get through? This is where the conversation begins. ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Now, psychologists themselves are calling for changes here. In fact, you might have seen the news this morning with the Australian Association of Psychologists not only pushing for the number of visits to be doubled, but also for the amount of money that patients get back from Medicare to be boosted as well. Although I should note, they are just one psychological organisation. They're not speaking for the entire industry. Dr Victoria Miller is a clinical psychologist. She's the Associate Director at the Melbourne Wellbeing Group. Victoria, good morning. Good morning. Have you seen that lack or that change when it comes to the number of subsidised appointments having an impact on your patients? Yes, unfortunately, yes. And it happened really fast as well. Um, I think, you know, over the last 12 months, we've suddenly seen patients for the first time in a long time, I think, really have to say, look, what can I afford? I know that this isn't ideal, but I've only got 10 sessions let's space them out what work can we actually achieve and i've to the point where i've even had sessions with clients almost like counting pennies in front of me kind of going okay all right well i can afford one more so why don't we just you know kind of catch up again in a few weeks time and maybe that will do enough it's it's been pretty sad actually it it feels really dire Well, well, let's flip it for one second, because it used to be 10 sessions. It was increased as part of um, almost a a suite of COVID reforms or COVID policies to 20. Did you see that that was having a benefit for people? Uh, No. Look, I think it's always been a problem. I think when the rebates first came in in 2006, I think most people, we had 12 available with the option of an additional six if needed. And so that was 18. Mm. And I would say that most people at that point in time were accessing the 18 and even that wasn't enough. So when it was dropped, when the extra six was dropped and we were down to 12, that was tricky, but at least it was once a month. And then when they dropped it down to 10 again, which just seemed about managing budgets, not about um, what our clients needed, it was dire then. But I think what we didn't have at the time was a cost of living crisis. And I would also say that mental health difficulties have uh, become heightened as a consequence of COVID. So we're looking at a more complex mental health um, 
needs in the community at the time that people can afford it the least. So I wouldn't say that 10 sessions was ever okay. It's just that maybe it was almost kind of manageable enough. Maybe. 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 I'm hearing yeah. a very big maybe, Victoria. <laughs> I just, I, look, obviously everything is, you know, individual between you and, and the client, but what can you really do in 10 sessions a year? That doesn't seem like a lot to me standing it's, on the sideline. Yeah, look, it's not. I mean, look, there is the occasion where people who are, you know, perhaps have been in therapy before or are very well resourced psychologically, they have a lot of support. Um, maybe a few sessions is enough. But as soon as you add any kind of complexity or multiple diagnoses, um, histories of, of trauma, um, anything like that, then then there's not a lot you can achieve in 10 sessions. So in fact, it, it changes the way that we work because what it means is that we have to try to figure out, well, what can we achieve in 10 sessions? What is realistic? And that that is really tricky. Um, so sometimes it means that we become much more solution focused, which means we're much more about problem solving and just trying to get people kind of skilled enough to just kind of tread water, so to speak. But I wouldn't say that we're moving anyone towards recovery. Yeah, which and clearly solutions focus can be great for some clients. It's what many people are, some people are looking for, I should say, but it's not going yep. to be for everyone. It sounds like in many ways you're almost having to, to find a one size fits all to make it work. Yeah, it absolutely is. And it takes away all of the nuance and all of the opportunity for clinicians to work with their clients to really personalise a plan and to decide what it is that they they really need. Um, And I I think it's really sad. And I think um, psychology and and mental health services are are really undervalued, I think, in that respect for it to be reduced to, to such a small amount of sessions. I've had a text in saying I am very seriously considering cancelling my next appointment. It will be over $300 for an hour with just a small subsidy. You touched on it before. Clients, you say, almost counting out, you know, coins in front of you to see if they can afford it. Um, We know the subsidy is an element of it. It's not just the amount that can be, the amount of um, uh, sessions you can get. It's how much you get back as well that's part of the problem here. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's never felt like enough. And I think what's what's difficult is that at a time when uh, people don't have much disposable income, they are even the out of pocket expense often feels too too great to manage. And so that means that some people can't even get in the door to even begin the services. And for those community-based services that are free or perhaps have a sliding scale of cost, they're very, very, very difficult to get into because they are um, very under-resourced. Um, what, what does it mean that people who might need that help are doing? Are they just not getting it? Are they looking in other areas? Are we seeing a growth of more peer support or grassroots work? Yeah. Is, is there any well, good news out there? Well, I, look, I think. Well, look, I think what happens is people do um, the best they can, and I think that there's a huge market, sort of the self-help space. Um, uh, people will access what they can. Uh, I think a lot of people will lean on their GPs a lot, mm. um, but then there's not a lot that that GPs can do. They're, they're already doing so much. Um, I think people read books. They turn to social media. They uh, go to support groups. They find like-minded people. But what I struggle with is 
the the consequence of that, which is that if people are not getting better, then we're not doing good enough preventative care and we end up seeing people move into crisis more often. And we could be keeping people out of crisis. We could be attending to their mental health needs before we get to that point. And I think that's what ends up happening, which puts enormous, enormous pressure on emergency departments, on crisis assessment teams, on our tertiary mm. mental health um, services and we could be we could be supporting the community better there's no doubt victoria across the board it does feel like when we talk mental health prevention seems to be a huge missing part of the equation on on all levels yeah yeah absolutely i think that there's there's um there's a huge gap between um what people are able to easily access and what they need and then um we're just leaving a big a big gaping hole i think for um for escalation which is a shame because you know therapy is wonderful and intervention is is um uh is very effective when people can access what they need when they need it Dr Victoria Miller, thank you so much for your time this morning. Victoria's uh, the Associate Director at the Melbourne Wellbeing Group. Are you having trouble accessing, whether it's due to lack of availability or lack of money for you, are you having trouble getting in touch with mental health professionals? Have you struggled to make those appointments? On the ABC Listen app, your smart speaker and on AM radio. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. My name's Nick Healy. I'm filling in for Rochelle this week. Chris has texted in saying, Nick, it is impossible to get help for mental health issues. It feels so difficult. It took nine months for me to get any help at all after I suffered a severe blow to my mental health. Uh, just on the line, I've got Paula in Bansdale. Paula, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for talking about this topic. It's a really important topic and I, I'm keen to get into it. What, what have you noticed with regional issues? So I'm, I'm a nurse as well, so I'm very acutely aware of the consequences of people not getting the right support. And I had a personal experience, what I have with my daughter, who has complex mental health and eating disorder, depression, anxiety and some other things. And school refusal of only attending school 40% of the time. And I could not get a psychologist for her from Bensdale to Melbourne. I could not. Um, So we decided to actually split our family and move her to Melbourne to get help. So rural people are just so disadvantaged all the time. And even when you present to our emergency departments, we don't have mental health specialist people that can Mm. help people. And we just see... Um, neglect and recently I went to a conference from the ANMF about reducing seclusion and restraint for mental health people when they present in in an emergency situation and the Department of Health is not even collecting the data on rural hospitals. They're only collecting data on hospitals that have a mental health service. So the, the, the people that have the least service are getting the least help, the least looking at what help you either need or the staff need it's it's diabolical paula I, I can't believe you've had to make that move you've had to split your family to get the support you require that's right because you know we've got animals and we couldn't just move so we rented an apartment so you know we don't have a lot of money i'm a nurse my husband public service but we have funded for two years an apartment in melbourne um, to make sure my daughter can get the access now she's improved out of sight long way to go she'll need mental health care for the rest of her life but 
um, and the restriction of only having psychologists deliver the 10 sessions means that people who are like my daughter who are complex can't get access to the psychologist, the higher level specialist, because they've been clogged up with potentially people that could be dealt with a counsellor. So, you know, the whole system from top to bottom needs overhauling. Big decisions have to be made. The poor mental health practitioners, they've been crucified trying mm. to meet the demand. You know, so it's, it's terrible across the whole board. Paula, I can't thank you enough for sharing that. Um, that sort of story is incredibly important that we get an understanding of. I just want to say this is a big topic. This is a complex topic and this can be a hard topic for us to talk about. Lifeline, if you need it, is on 13 11 14. Now, back at the end of 2022, when the policy of 20 subsidised sessions lapsed, there's actually a report that looked into the impact that those additional sessions had given people, essentially. And it noted that while the extra 10 visits did lead to better outcomes not unlike we are just hearing from Paula, it said that it disproportionately favoured people who are on higher incomes or in major cities. Now, Caroline Hunt is the president of the Australian Clinical Psychology Association. Caroline, good morning to you. Uh, good morning, Nick. Where do you stand on the current call to see the number of subsidised visits to a mental health professional back up to 20 as it was for that short period over the pandemic? We don't necessarily support a um, an increase for everybody because we recognise there are people who do um, have the sort of um, mental health um, difficulties that really, you know, 10 sessions is sufficient. Mm. What um, the Australian Clinical Psychology Association is talking about is saying there are a proportion of people with more complex, um, maybe comorbid mental health problems that all of the research evidence shows that, you know, you just cannot treat properly um, to, you know, to get people to have, you know, lower distress, better functioning um, without those extra sessions. So what we are arguing is that we need to find a way somewhere within the system um, uh, and that would include um, the system of better access in terms of the number of sessions, but we're also um, interested in sort of a, a broader sort of public sector sort of push for extra services. We're saying you really need to specify, um, you know, who needs those extra sessions, um, who needs to deliver the treatment and, and, and really be um, clear about that. All right, so a lot more nuance in the way it's handled, but I, I guess who would be making the argument for which clients need the greater support? Well, that is part of the um, challenge. Um, at the moment, um, general practitioners are really the gateway um, to people um, accessing psychology services through better access. So general practitioners will play a really substantial role in making those decisions. And we know because um, we've been having conversations with government and the Department of Health about this, there is a lot of thought that's going into, you know, how do we help um, general practitioners? How do we help um, people who are more at that sort of primary um, level of care? It could be emergency departments. Make sure that people get to the, to, you know, to the, the um, um, mental health practitioners and for the right number of sessions that they need. Um, it is a challenge, but there are conversations that are actively happening at the moment. And Caroline, you heard Paula's story before about just how borderline it possible it was for her to get support for a daughter in a regional area. Um, I know you've looked at that. that. That can't be a surprising story to you. 
No, all the data shows that there is a um, geographical maldistribution of um, mental health professionals and it's not just clinical psychologists, it's also um, psychiatrists and social workers and across the board. So we know that um, you know rural, regional areas and even outer metropolitan areas um, you know that, that might be um, have a different socioeconomic demographic to sort of inner city are really underserviced by mental health services. Caroline, a few people have texted in. I'm hoping you might be able to sort of point us in a direction of an answer on this. You know, we know that it's roughly for many people around about $300 an hour to see a psychologist and the rebate, depending on who you see, can be uh, around about 93 or I think up to $137. A few people asking why it's that $300 mark. You know, what, what, what is the justification for those fees? I mean, most of the people who are um, working with better access are working in, in private practice, so they're actually operating businesses. They need to run those businesses. They need to employ, you know, reception staff. They need to keep pay rent. They need to keep the lights on, that sort of thing. And I think part of the problem, there is a problem with those gap fees. I mean, it does make the whole system more inequitable across the board. Um, so it does need to be addressed. Um, but I think the, the bottom line is, you know, people are do have these, um, you know, private businesses that they need to keep operating. And so there is a need for them to charge those fees, unfortunately. Yeah, I really appreciate it, Caroline. You have been a, a very big insight on this, so thank you very much. Caroline Hunt is the President of the Australian Clinical Psychology Association. On the text line, I appreciate Elsie getting in touch, saying psychology is just unaffordable, full stop. And Jennifer, and Jennifer, we will get into this later, but Jennifer saying, look, as a mental health clinician working more than 20 years in the public system and private practice, it's so frustrating when we hear media essentially only talking about the services of psychologists, social workers, occupational therapists, psychiatric nurses, psychotherapists, they are just as experienced and qualified to provide the services needed. Jennifer, that is something we will dive in a little bit later this morning. I appreciate you getting in touch. 0437 774 774. Nassane is a national group. It works with people who are living with complex mental health issues. Now, it's also there for the families and friends that support them. The CEO of the group is Rachel Green. Rachel, good morning to you. Good morning, Nick. Great to be with you. Look, saying working on a peer-to-peer support network, can you break down for me what, what that means and how that works? Absolutely. So, SANE uh, delivers two programs. One is called our guided service and it started as a pilot. It's been extended now a couple of times because of the really promising outcomes where we're showing through essentially a telehealth model. People get telephone-based counselling and peer support and attend groups and we do support planning and set goals. We're seeing improvements in recovering quality of life. And that also helps guide people to our digital community, which is an online forum of about 40,000 plus members around Australia, where we also provide uh, peer-to-peer support through discussion forums 24-7. So we're showing that um, there is effectiveness in digital and telehealth services. And we, we you know, our whole mm. mission is around trying to bridge those gaps for people who are experiencing waiting lists or who can't afford to access uh you know, other services. Have you seen a greater demand for your service? I mean, I'm seeing some reports suggesting that waiting lists are sitting around that 12-week mark to be able to go and see a mental health professional. 
Yeah, look, we, you know, since we first started delivering the guided service, we've had, you know, high demand and it hasn't abated, essentially. We're running a model that allows us to get people in quite quickly, uh, but there are limits to the service mm. we can provide because it started as a pilot. We're actually only available in about 13 primary health network regions around Australia. So in Victoria, that's only a couple of areas in, for example, northwest Melbourne and uh, Western Victoria. So we do see demand from outside those areas from people who've heard about it and think, why can't I access this? We are hopeful that through some upcoming, uh, you know, budget processes and retenders, we'll be able to show the value of this and get it extended to all regions. But the demand is certainly there. And Rachel, when we talk about people with complex mental health issues, I mean, how does that differ from someone who might be uh, experiencing anxiety or depression? Look, we don't define complex around a specific diagnosis. Okay. Obviously, there are some mental health issues that might be more long-term, more enduring or have, um, you know, uh, different sets of symptoms that might be considered to be more complex. But for us, complex can be a range of factors. It might be you've got, you know, severe depression and you're living with chronic suicidality. You might uh, be living with anxiety and that's causing you significant impact. You're unable to work or you're experiencing family violence or homelessness. So for us, we, we actually don't um, exclude people on the basis of one diagnosis or another. Um, if it's complex for you, and particularly what we hear from a lot of people is they've often been uh, unable to find a support or service that meets their needs. But, you know, we do hear about people getting turned away by providers who might specialise in a particular area and mm. say to someone, actually, your needs are too complex for me. And that's happening for adults that's happening for children with complex needs and and I, it's a really big problem i was gonna say i can imagine that might be even more prevalent in regional and remote areas although i know that you know you have that limited work that you're doing in those areas absolutely well we do cover a number of regional areas we cover all of wa in the northern territory for example and for people in regional areas there might not be um a local uh psychologist or psychiatrist or or social worker or mental health nurse you can get access to or people might struggle to get to a GP who can prescribe you with a plan to go and go and see someone. And I think a big problem we don't talk about enough is that, you know, your, your caller earlier mentioned there are all these different types of supports and peer support, mental health nursing, these are all really important parts of recovery. People still struggle to know what's on the menu, what could help me and what, what's useful for what type of situation. And navigation, help to navigate and coordinate and make a plan is something that's still really only funded at the very, very, very pointy end in, in situations like when someone's got a psychosocial disability under the NDIS. And the bar for that level of support where someone, there's actually funding to ha have someone help you navigate right. is so high that for most people, the message they receive is you have to get all the way worse. You have to have no, no chance of um, being able to manage your own daily living to get access to any sort of subsidy for that kind of help. Rachel, it feels like what Victoria was saying at the, at the start of the show that, you know, when we look at healthcare in this country, we still devalue the mental health aspect of it. Look, it, it has always been something that's perplexed me that we, we do fund mental health differently and, and dental, by the way, to other parts of the body and the mind. Um, and I think What's interesting about the changes to better access, I mean, if we go back to the report that was pre prepared on the evaluation, it did show the inequity. That's a really, mm. it's an issue really important to us. It did show that for people with really complex needs, when they could get access, it was effective. And it showed that some people were using it more when their needs weren't as complex. 
And that doesn't mean those people shouldn't get help, but what we don't have is a system that is equitable and uh, allows, for example, a GP to give someone access who does have higher needs to a higher needs package. Um, they don't have the, you often don't have the time. You're talking mm. about a really high pressure environment and there isn't the information for the person or the family to know what might work. And so we're left with this one size fits none system where, you know, everyone <clears throat> seems to be having challenges in getting what they need instead of something that's been purpose built. So Rachel, I promise I'll let you go in a second, but um, just on that note, how do people find themselves within your service? How do people find their way to SANE? One of the things that we've really focused on is making it as easy as possible to get access to our supports in our community. So SANE.org uh, has a page where you can refer yourself. You don't need a referral. We do try and capture some information so we can understand your story and how to support you. And essentially there's a, an eligibility checker. You can pop your uh your postcode in and find out if you're in a guided service region and then it's free to access. Um, you can also ask your GP to give you a referral so we've got more information. The SANE forums are saneforums.org and it's free to join up. Uh, everyone is welcome and it's a really thriving community. Rachel Green, I really appreciate your time. It's a fascinating model to be working on that peer-to-peer support network idea around mental health. Rachel's the CEO of SANE. On the text line, uh, anonymous text is saying, being limited to 10 sessions, it just isn't enough. Then having to pay up front and maybe wait for that Medicare part to get paid back while I'm on a disability benefit is incredibly difficult indeed. On the ABC Listen app, your smart speaker, and on AM radio. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Dan, my name is Nick Healy. I'm filling in this week for Rochelle. Just very quickly, back onto that Burnley Tunnel collision. Two of the three lanes are still closed in the tunnel. That was a multi-vehicle collision a little bit earlier. Uh, there is one lane open for traffic, and that's traffic heading towards the southeastern suburbs, and the speed is set at 40 kilometres per hour. Now, that does mean there are traffic delays on the Westgate Freeway. They've been building rapidly. The suggestion is that motorists consider leaving that freeway early, detouring via City Road through South Bank or via Kingsway and Dandenong Road to avoid delays through the tunnel. If you need a real-time update of what's going on, traffic.vicroads.vic.gov.au. And if you want to see what the impact's been on public transport, that's ptv.vic.gov. Peter in South Yarra saying, is a psychologist business any different from any other Australian private business operator with staff and reception costs, rents and etc.? $300 an hour, should that be the standard rate for absolutely everybody now? Peter, thanks for texting in. And a few people have noted that while we're talking today, a lot of the focus when I say mental health professionals has been on psychologists. Traditionally, it's always been on psychologists. That is who you're likely to find yourself referred to if you're going through a GP for a mental health plan. But there are only one element of that professional network that provides mental health support. Uh, one of the uh, other aspects of it is, of course, social workers. Cindy Smith is the CEO of the Australian Association of Social Workers. Cindy, good morning. Uh, good morning, Nick, and thank you for inviting us. Well, I'm very pleased to talk about it because I do think that when people look towards getting that mental health support, social workers are definitely not forward in their mind. Why not? Oh, I think that's largely historical. Social workers haven't worked in private practice to um, probably the degree that psychologists have and so um, maybe aren't front of mind for 
um, um, members of the public, but also certainly from GPs as well. We need a lot more work and intervention with uh, general practitioners to refer to social workers um, as they readily would with a psychologist, for example. We have um, over 3,500 accredited mental health so social workers located around Australia, and they are definitely um, a workforce ready and able to um, work in this space. They largely do, um, but we would think that they could be utilised a lot more than they currently are. So, Cindy, who, how, what could a social worker do for someone? What sort of services are we talking about? So social workers work um, very similar to um, psychologists in this space. They um, receive training um, with different therapies um, and interventions. So if someone comes to um, seek services of a social worker, say, for example, anxiety um, and stress, a social worker definitely are able to and trained to um, be able to develop coping strategies, identify techniques and supports to help them in that situation. Where a social worker would also focus on is um, the underlying causes of stress mix so, or anxiety or whatever the, um, the prevailing um, um, issue is that the person has. Um, you would um, understand and, and your listeners will understand that stress and anxiety um, often don't come out of, um, out of the air. They usually have an underlying cause. So... A social worker would not only, and are trained to not only um, um, support the individual with their, um, their anxiety and the stress or the impacts of that on their lives, but they would then um, quite um, fo in a focused way look at the underlying cause. So if that's family violence, if that's housing instability, um, perhaps it's issues with gambling or financial um, stressors, a whole myriad of stresses that you can imagine family violence, a social worker would work uh, with that individual to address those underlying causes um, because, um, you know, unless those underlying causes are addressed, the impact of the stress and anxiety is really not going to be alleviated in any great way. And Cindy, of course, that's like within the full realms of the regulation to, to make sure the social workers have all the credentials they need to, to do this. Uh, this is a complexity that we live in, Nick, unfortunately. So, for example, there's about, um, government documents put it at, there's about 40,000 social workers, would you believe, around Australia. Social work is the largest allied health profession. Um, unfortunately, though, we're not a registered profession. So oh. there are a number of professions, about 14 or thereabouts, that are registered under the National Registration Accreditation Scheme, administered through ARPA, so a lot of people... Um, would would recognise that, administered through ARPA. The AASW, um, of which I'm the CEO, we've advocated that social work be included under the NRAS, the National Registration Scheme, for, for actually decades. Australia is the only English-speaking country that social work is not a registered profession. And we think that the public deserves this assurance um, that social work be included under NRAS, such as psychology and physiotherapy and the other allied health and being the largest allied health profession we think that if the profession is registered this will then surface it in the mind of the public they'll be more readily able to um to see where the social workers are the social workers would uh, be required to um, follow the same obligations that some of the other professions are 
at the moment, unfortunately, anyone can call themselves a social worker. Wow. And we just, yeah, we just believe that the public deserves that assurance. Well, absolutely. I, I think my sister is a social worker. I know she went through multiple degrees. She spent a lot of time working for Department of Community Services in Sydney. And I think when you said before there's a, a bit of a hang-up on what a social worker do does, I, I've always imagined her role, which was having a lot of people assigned to her rather than seeking her out, if you understand what I mean. Yeah, that's right. So they've traditionally, social workers traditionally work in community services and child protection. Um, so it's it really has been in only recent decades that social mm. workers have started to work in numbers in clinical um, or private practice clinical settings. So it is a change. It's a change for the public. It's a change for the government around seeking a social worker out in a private practice. So to get a referral. So at the moment, social workers can provide service under the Better Access Scheme. Accredited mental health social workers, they go through an extensive accreditation They've most often got extensive postgraduate studies, um, similar to what your sister has, and they um, are setting up private practice. So it is, it is, you know, in only in recent decades. Um, as I said, traditionally they work for community services and, and NGOs, um, but it is there are about three hundred, um, sorry, three thousand five hundred social workers as accredited mental health social workers located around Australia. Our data shows that they're often located regionally as well. So um, it's just really linking that service system, the referral system from the GP to the accredited mental health social workers. And Cindy, one of the big conversations we're having this morning is about making sure that mental health support is accessible outside of metro areas, about making yeah. sure that it's equitable for people in regional and remote areas. Is that something that, I guess, a greater understanding of social workers and what they can offer, would that help with that? Yes, it absolutely would. And our data um, of where our credit and mental health social workers are located demonstrates that already, Nick. They are located more often in those regional areas. We don't have the clusters around the CPD um, of social workers with accredited mental health social workers as perhaps some of the other professions do. Surely they, 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 do, they are in those areas, but they are, um, they're more locally and regionally located than some of the others. So we do think that it's a willing workforce. They are there and um, we've just got to link up that support government to support the general practice to... Um, to develop, be able to develop stronger referral systems from general practice to accredited mental health social workers. Cindy Smith, thanks for your time this morning. Cindy's the CEO of the Australian Association of Social Workers. On the line, I've got Jane. Jane's in Bansdale. Jane, good morning to you. Hi there. You are a counsellor. We've had a few people questioning sort of uh, why it's $300 to, to come in and see a psychologist at the moment. I note that you try and keep your fees low. I have always stood for that because I'm a great believer in when people need help um, and, you know, they have they can access someone who's who's done the training, which I have, um, I think that they, you know, they need to be seen and and need to be able to access it. So, you know, when I hear $300, I understand that there are overall fees to be paid, such as were described. But I would have to say that, you know, I try and keep my, my fee at about a third of that. Um, I work in a private practice. Um, I've got, you know, room 
rental, but, you know, to me, what is most important is being able for people to access um, my services. Now, where it um, is very disappointing is that, unfortunately, councillors, even those that are, you know, fully trained, are unable to get a rebate. So, in other words, when, pay, when people mm. go to the doctors and get a mental health plan, you know, they then say to me, can I use this? And, you know, I, I have to say, well, look, I'm really sorry, but no. But, you know, when I hear the difference that, um, you know, people are having to pay anyway, um, even with, uh, you know, the rebate, it seems that, um, you know, probably, <laughs> you know, my fee is quite, you know, quite accessible. But having said that, it's still... A big chunk when people are trying to juggle, you know, am I going to pay for food this week or am I going to pay for, you know, it, it, it's a juggle. It really is. Oh, Jane, I appreciate that you actually acknowledge that and thank you um, for, for having that. And has it been difficult for you to actually keep your prices where they are? Um, I have just made a decision. You know, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I'm just trying to do the right, the best thing for my clients, um, and I do, you know, I do get told that maybe I'm undervaluing my service, or you know, I think that there's a bit of, you know, how could you be charging that amount, you know? But it's a choice. It's a choice. It is a choice. Jane, again, thanks for calling in on that. It's a really interesting perspective on why those fees work that way. I'm on one three hundred. Triple two seven seven four. With the cost of living as high and as difficult to manage as it is, have you had to put mental health on the back burner? Have you had to cancel psychologist appointments or, or make sure that one family member gets those resources above and beyond anyone else? Uh, have you struggled to get appointments and support in your area? Have you found it out of reach? On the ABC Listen app, your smart speaker, and on AM radio. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Nick Healy here, filling in for Rochelle this week, and we're talking about mental health. We're talking about ways to make it affordable and accessible as well, and to everybody, not just in regional areas. Texts are in saying, why aren't we talking a bit more about the lack of support groups in our community being facilitated by either a counsellor or a psychologist. And I think group therapy has long been one of those conversations that uh, hasn't been necessarily as organised as it can be. I've got Connie on the line from Sandringham. Connie, good morning. Good morning. Connie, you are also a counsellor like Jane we just spoke to. That's right. And, you know, we we have over 10,000 registered counselors and and we're all trained and we have undergraduate and postgraduate qualifications. We are members of professional organizations that have code of ethics and requirements per for professional development. And we get a lot of clients who come to us because they do have mental health plans and they can't actually afford the gap between what the Medicare rebate is and what a psychologist will charge. Um, and I think that the member organizations like the Australian Counseling Association and PACFA had been lobbying long and hard to try to get um, our workforce recognized so that we can have mental health um, sessions available for people who need them. And, and Connie, you may not know, but do you know what the response has been from government organizations? Do you know what the kind of, uh, I think, reasoning behind you not being able to, to work in that way? 
No, I don't know what the government's uh, logic or reasoning is. I mean, there are differences between like social workers where some people mm. can call themselves counselors, but registered um, accredited counselors are people who've got undergraduate and, and quite often postgraduate qualifications. Um, and we are quite um, professional and, you know, we, we are there to provide a service. Um, I just don't understand why that's not being recognized and, and why the government isn't utilizing both social workers and counselors to provide more mental health support for uh, people who really need it. Connie, that's certainly been one of the big questions for me coming out today as well as I learn more on this, and I really appreciate you getting in touch. one three hundred triple two seven seven four. Sue on the text line saying, so what I'm hearing is that mental health care is simply not affordable for millions of people and potentially those who need it the most. This is just not good enough. So, Sue, as I think I said at the start, if you pull it all together, you pull those long wait times to see a mental health professional, you see the 10 sessions that can be subsidised and, and the limit of who can actually access those subsidies, yeah, it could be a very dire, dire picture that's being painted. So when a psychologist visit or a visit to another mental health professional, when it isn't easily affordable or easily accessible, what happens? Nevis Murray is the CEO of Suicide Prevention Australia and a good morning to you. Good morning, Nick. I know if we break down statistics around suicide and self-harm, we have seen increases uh, in Victoria particularly and certainly with certain age demographics. Is there a correlation between those statistics and uh, the accessibility of mental health care? Look, it's very difficult to predict um, uh, correlation um, with suicide in particular. Uh, what we do know, though, is that there has been an increase in suicides across Victoria and New South Wales over the last 12 months. And that's, you know, that represents more than half of the Australian population. So we do know that we have um, an issue with people uh, feeling distress. Uh, we conduct a, a community tracker where we uh, actually, um, you know, get feedback from the broader community in relation to levels of distress. And we know that the cost of living is uh, elevating distress. We also know that it's two to three years after a major event mm. like a natural disaster or something like a pandemic that we see increases in suicide. So yes, it's quite complex, um, but we certainly can't draw direct correlations between uh, one thing and another. Um, but we, we do know that accessing a service system that is effective um, is important in order to keep our community safe. And to have an effective mental health system, we need uh, a well-qualified, effective mental health workforce. And that's not just the clinical workforce, but the clinical and non-clinical workforce, as well as the peer workforce. Nevis, I touched on it before, but it feels to me like there's a real savage irony that the exact cost of living pressures that are making it hard for people to afford mental health care are the same pressures that for many people are increasing that mental health distress. Absolutely. And I mean, if you, you know, if, you, if you're making a decision between putting food on the table mm. and accessing a mental health service, um, you know, they're, they're pretty dire decisions. And so we need to ensure that 
um, you know, in the upcoming federal budget, the government considers uh, some of the submissions that are being made by the peak bodies um, in respect of ensuring an appropriately trained workforce, um, both clinical and non-clinical, as I say, alternatives to clinical support so that we're um, addressing the, the distress levels of people further upstream. Um, I think, um, you know, we also talked about complex mental health a little earlier in the, in the program. You know, complex mental health um, is absolutely absolutely uh, important to be addressed in the service system. But it's not just complex mental health that impacts a person's risk of suicide. So we need to think more broadly when we think about when we're thinking about the prevention of suicide in our community. It goes back to to what sort of I guess really worrying me is that we, we are so focused in Australia on mental health as crisis reactions, not prevention. That's right, and I mean, if you if you look at um, the data, it's um, you know sure there are clinical aspects that lead um, somebody to uh, suicidal risk, but there are many other aspects that impact a person's risk of suicide. We know that about half the people who die by suicide um, have touched the mental health system, but the other half haven't. Um, so mm. you know, certainly our approach has been to lobby government to take a whole of government approach and look at. Um, the issue of keeping our community safe through a much broader lens than just addressing it through the health system. So it is about ensuring that the health system and the mental health service system is uh, well equipped and has the right mix of skills to address the needs of the community. And I think we've uh, talked about social workers and counsellors, occupational therapists, they're, they're all part of that service environment that we need to strengthen as well as the peer workforce. And I think we talked, you also talked a little bit about support groups. So there's more ways than one to address this complex problem. But it seems like it's going to be a big change for us culturally and even in terms of policy to take a more holistic view at mental health. No question, but there are international models that we can look to. Um, if you look at, for example, the UK, there's a very strong um, presence of social workers in that system to support people with mental health problems. So, you know, it, we need to think more broadly than the traditional systems. We know that the current system is not working for our community. We need to change the system. When we don't get the access we need to those mental health professionals within that sort of, I guess, more clinical setting, how much pressure does that put back on crisis hotlines like Lifeline, like 13YARN? Yeah, great, great question. We have seen a significant increase of access to uh, crisis lines over the last couple of years. Uh, a year, about a year ago, we saw the highest utilisation of crisis lines, particularly Lifeline, um, that, that they had seen in the history of their service. So, you know, crisis lines are at the very tippy end, the most, uh, you know, uh, at, the, at the sharp end of the of the uh, of the pyramid in re in relation to where where a person lands when they're in the highest levels of distress. So we need to ensure that those services have the appropriately trained people and also the right funding to be able to provide that, you know, ultimate safety net for people who are at risk of suicide. I don't want to sound ridiculous here, but while we're talking about all of this, it just strikes me that the people who are working as mental health professionals, the pressure they're under, the burnout, the, the difficulty, their own mental health struggles must be mounting and mounting. 
we are most certainly seeing a heightened level of uh, emotional exhaustion in the mental health workforce. <sighs> We're seeing people leaving the workforce as a result of burnout. Um, so absolutely. So if we don't have a system that's well-funded, well-structured, then the people who are working in that system are also going to suffer. Do you see change on the horizon? Do you sort of either on a federal or a state-by-state state level, do you think there is a, a, a movement towards correcting some of this? Uh, without question, there, there's certainly uh, appetite for change. Um, we've seen, obviously, the Royal Commission in Victoria um, come come through with some very uh, good recommendations in relation to um, uh, systemic changes there. We've uh, seen or heard commitments from the federal government that they're looking to um, review the Better Access Program. I suppose the level of urgency, um, I think it's fair to say, we're, we're not happy with the pace of change. Uh, we don't want to change things for the sake of change and get it wrong, uh, absolutely. By the same token, we don't want to be removing services while we address those uh, required systemic changes. We want to make sure that we're maintaining services until we're in a position to make the systemic change that's required. Um, but certainly the, the immediacy, the, the urgency is real. Um, people are in distress now. We can't wait any longer for these systemic changes. Nevis Murray, thank you so much. Nevis is the CEO of Suicide Prevention Australia. And a couple of texts um, saying, Nick, I want you to know my experience. Both my children need to see psychologists at the moment. Each one is costing $230 a visit with an $85 rebate. Given that they need this weekly, we're also having some testing done with no rebate. I'm spending thousands at the moment. I've given up on buying clothes for me, food for me, spending money on getting to work. Working for home is not accepted, so that is a massive struggle as well. And Jazz saying the cost of mental health assistance has such a huge impact on families as quite obviously everyone in the family needs a bit of help. You forget that one person needing that support can have an impact all the way through. I just want to thank everyone who's got in touch today. As I said, a really difficult conversation. Um, I appreciate people coming in with their personal experiences as well. It's a conversation we have to have when we want to see changes to those suicide and self-harm statistics. And if it's been a conversation that's raised some difficulty for you, Lifeline is 13 11 14. Tomorrow, we know last year was an absolutely horrific one in Victoria when we talk specifically about deaths on the road. It was actually the worst in 15 years. A very complex topic and there's a lot of ways we can look at how we change that. But that's going to be the focus of tomorrow's show. How do we get ourselves to maybe even zero road deaths in 2024? Thanks for your company. I'm really looking forward to speaking to you tomorrow.